these processes, I mean, maybe I would hope to be some rejuvenation of all of these community driven processes during this decade, right? Because there's so many things that have to happen and they're all interactive and they're all important and they all need input of everyone, uh, you know, especially the people that are most affected. Mm-hmm. Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin, Massachusetts FM dial at 102.9, here today for another session with my climate guide, Ted McIntyre, to help me make sense of climate. Ted, happy Tuesday. How are you doing this morning, sir? I am doing wonderful and happy to... As a climate guide, I was thinking climate Sherpa, but you're doing so much work on this uh, to learn on your own. I'm just happy to be here. I'll be your climate guide today. Yes, to the 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 in the land, as they say, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So I encourage <laughs> everyone to go read what you can about climate because it's important. Yes, and we're doing our you, we together. You are helping me make sense of climate. That's our whole goal. So if you're a new listener. We've got a list of episodes that we've put together. I think if I've lost, if I haven't lost count, this is number twenty-three. Wow! <laughs> so there's wow. there's there's a bunch of peop- things in the in the archives that you can go back and catch up on if you choose, or just you know fasten in the seatbelts and come along for the ride because we've got a few more planned. <laughs> and today we're starting off because um, we've had one of those unique. We went what. 100 degree change in a matter of what 24 48 hours <laughs> dropping down to what a minus 50 wind chill here in franklin and now we're back into 40s and 50s and it's like wait a minute what just hit us <laughs> yeah yeah it's a, it's a it's been quite a warm winter here in franklin in particular new england in general yes i don't know did you there was an article in the globe recently the gentleman's name is billy bill baker but it's kind of a snarky article saying the winters are so warm now that people from new england can no longer tell stories about how they kept their parking lot their parking spot in front of their house clear right mm-hmm. and all the things that define you as a new englander right. I mean, facing this cold it doesn't happen as much anymore. It's, it's, I mean, this winter has been remarkably mild. People are walking around in, in shorts and you know white shirts, except when you get this incredible cold snap. So you say you get this huge transition, this whiplash. And let me just say, from a technical perspective, right? The debate, I think, the debate is is not so much a debate anymore, but the observation is that warming of the Earth at the equator equator allows the jet stream to be more waggly that is to say the jets the jet stream if you remember you always see it as this thing that goes across the united states but it basically goes around the globe right you know across siberia across europe and it has undulations where it goes up and down and because the air near the latitudes is warming the jet stream can dive farther down mm-hmm. 
right down to Washington, D.C., and then you get a big blob of Arctic air that drifts down, and you get the kind of thing that happened here in Franklin last week, where you get this incredible cold for a couple of days, and then finally it, the, the jet stream moves on. But, I mean, there's a, a reasonable, what they call attribution of these kinds of events, with these extreme cold events, to climate. Of course, I mean, I've lived in New England all my life. It's been cold, right? It gets cold here. You know, that's the way it is. Right. But this kind of thing where it's, you know, 60 degrees in February, then the next day it's minus 10, that's relatively unusual. Yeah. Right? The, the variations are becoming more extreme and unfortunately becoming more frequent. <laughs> Um, I think even in the Northeast, what was it? New York had an article last week that they actually set a record for the most days without snow cover. <laughs> right. Yeah. So New York's not that far away. And they usually they're part of the Northeast. They don't necessarily get the change as we do as much, but they still get it. And they haven't had snow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we've had very we've had snow here, but not very much. It's always just borderline cold enough to snow. Right. right. And today it's probably, I don't know, mid 40s. I mean, it's brisk out, but not certainly not bitter. No, I, I, no. I can no. remember days when the, you know, your <laughs> nose would freeze, the, the inside of your nose would crisp up because it mm -hmm. was so cold, right? Oh, yeah. Well, less it was, frequent now. This time eight years ago, we were three weeks into that series of what was it, five blizzards in a row, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And now, eight years later, we haven't had appreciable snow, never mind blizzard snow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the it's a phrase that I've heard about the winter and the weather, but this, it goes like, it basically says this winter is warm, but it is probably one of the coldest winters you will experience for the rest of your life. Right? Yeah, and that's, that's kind that's, of a chilling thing to when you think of it that yeah. way. No pun intended, and that's the scary part. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. if it's get, truly getting that warm, and we're trending toward warm, this is as cold as we're going to get. And then what does that mean? I mean, there's some economic consequences on two sides. One side in particular, we know you were at the library and you got evacuated because there was a freeze situation that created some smoke. And then coincidentally, later in the day, they discovered that uh, a sprinkler pipe in the second floor senior center burst. And now the senior center is closed this week to repair the damage, et cetera. So um, I'm sure that I hope there's not too many, but there may be individual residences that are having similar, you know, frozen pipe issues. Right. And it's it's. The old standard used to be that you can never attribute any single weather event to climate change, right? right? That's kind of changing now, but given, I think most people in their gut know that the warm weather and the cold weather whiplash is kind of weird. And you can, it's easy to feel as if this is uh, climate related. And in that way, you can begin to say, gee, climate change is causing economic damage in Franklin, right? right. Somebody's got to fix this stuff. Right? Sure. It costs money and it happened. And it's at least, at the very least, you can say what Bill McKibben said in his book, The End of Nature, which he published in 1989, mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. But the end, so if you haven't read The End of Nature by Bill McKibben, the central thesis is that mankind has, that the concept of nature as being wild and untamable and beyond human impact, where the humans are subject to the forces of nature, I mean, that's over, right? Humans have screwed around with nature and that every weather event now could at least potentially have been affected by things that humans have done. So nature is different. It's the end of nature as we knew it. Mm -hmm. And Mother Nature can still be nasty, but not without human sort of poking and prodding. <laughs> so there you yeah. go. I mean, yeah, I mean, that the damage at the senior center is not a good thing. No, and I think that gives us an opportunity to do a couple of things. Um, one, I think another reference I had seen that on the one hand, if the, the climate continues to warm, et cetera, the species on Earth that is most at risk is not so much, although there's certainly uh, a lot of news articles on the polar bears, et cetera, but I think the humans are the ones that are most at risk. Most of the other animal nature's uh, species will adapt. Um, and some well, may go away, others will come back. And But how we're going to, our life as we know it is certainly changing. <laughs> well, and I think, I, I mean, I, I would go one step further and say that the warming, the, the warming winter is emblematic of a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. The warming winter means if you don't have a long enough hard freeze, the bugs in Franklin that we had last summer can all overwinter, right? right. So you, you're going to have new, new infestations of bugs, right? But at the same time, the warmer weather interrupts the bee population and the sure. insects that pollinate stuff. And if the oceans get warm, the phytoplankton, right, which is what the whales eat, right, mm -hmm. the whole food chain in the ocean collapses. So the humans are at risk. Yes, but so, I mean, the bugs and the species on which we depend in the sense that humans sit atop this house of cards of all the food that we get and all the mm -hmm. stuff that comes up that we're now screwing with the base of the house of cards right. and and so the humans are at risk but i mean if the bees are all gone the central valley can't produce any food anymore you're not going to have any lettuce or avocados i mean right. full stop yeah yeah picking up on the house of cards let's go talk housing um because i think one of the things that you know if you've got a uh, a broken pipe at some point in time, increase in insulation, um, other mitigation measures, what, depending upon it, what it is. But if you have an opportunity to build a new house, there's this thing that's been around for a bit called the passive house technology. And that it was what a Globe article recently that touted the house in Maine that really, other than a minor heat pump, <laughs> keeps 70 degrees all the time. Yeah, in Maine. Yeah, yeah. So, so. This is a really interesting technology for new construction, right? Passive house origi originated in Germany. And sometimes you see the passive house quoted in uh, a German, German spelling, right? But basically passive house means that the house is not generating any heat. It's only capturing heat passively. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating idea. The root idea of a passive house building design, right? This is a technology, passive house technology. The root mm -hmm. design is that the building is airtight, 
right? It's hermetically sealed. So there's no infiltration or escape of the warm air that's in the house, period. Okay, my windows here in my house are getting kind of leaky. I need to replace them, right? But there's infiltration. You get cold air in all the time and that keeps your house cold. That's what you're fighting with your heater. Right? Sure. Passive house posits a completely sealed envelope of the house and exceedingly thick walls. So like 15 inch thick walls that are all again, highly, highly insulated, right? Mm -hmm. So you can basically set it up so that no heat escapes and no heat gets in. So this requires windows that seal, right? And reliably seal over long periods, right? Um, and good insulation. So fine, you can do it. It turns out that the passive house costs are comparable. And there's a whole to building a regular house, get into the whole thing. The, beyond having the windows that seal properly and the hermetic seal to all of the joints in the house. The other important thing with passive house is my understanding is that you need to get fresh air in and out, right? right? If you totally seal a house, hermetically seal, what you make is a Petri dish, I think it's called, right? You have this thing, you're yeah. gonna have mold, you're gonna have all kinds of bad stuff you in the could, house. You could be because... doing experiments you don't want. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So so it's critical that if you're gonna have a highly sealed, hermetically sealed house, and then this passive house idea, that you need to exchange the air. But if you exchange the air in and out, basically if you open a window, all mm -hmm. the hot air goes out, the house gets cold, Sure. right? So that one of the important technology, I wouldn't say it's the, I mean, I'm not sure where it fits in the hierarchy of technologies, but one of the important technologies in Passive House is what's called a, a heat exchanger. So they have technologies for getting the, the, as the air exits the house, it transfers its heat to the incoming air, right? So you don't lose heat while you're exchanging air in the house. I mean, this mm -hmm. is really important. If you date back to the, 1980s, people started to insulate their houses better. And all of a sudden we had a radon problem because you weren't, the stuff wasn't leaking out of the house as fast, right? right? You, weren't, you, you weren't evacuating it, yes. Right. Yeah. So if you seal a house, then you need a heat exchange. And so part of the technology is to be able to capture the, keep the heat in the house. The heat that's in the outgoing air gets transferred to the ingoing fresh air and you're good to go. And it's really, uh, uh, the, the cost is comparable to building a, uh, to, uh, to regular building the old fashioned way. Someone I, I know and respect once said that the passive house design is the sexiest design in the world because in the wintertime you can walk around naked and there's no drafts. So you're warm all the time, right? The whole point of the passive house is to avoid leaks of air. And so the passive house is a completely tight seal. Mm -hmm. The the cost, I've heard differing things. The article in the Globe said that for an individual house, the cost might be 10% more. I'm not sure I fully buy that because I've heard other arguments that it's less. But if it's a little bit more, you can make up that extra cost by the operational cost because you don't burn any fuel. Right. Um, yeah, you've got some ongoing savings, electricity, heating, whatever. Um but yeah, I, I buy that there might be a potential upfront increase, but that there would be some return over time. And then 
that's where the circumstances would determine how how quick of a return it is and thereby and, you're certainly in a better place and the article makes the point and i think that the i think this is probably true is that the passive house design is intended for bigger buildings like dormitories and, and colleges and apartment complexes because that's where the the cost becomes the same between a different technologies for building and mm -hmm. you have more professional management of the whole making sure the whole building is yes yeah. and uh, conceptually that follows because now you're able to do it on scale as opposed to kind of on the other extreme kind of building a tiny house <laughs> right um, right in more in of fact, a miniature piece yeah there's an example here in boston so a person i uh know and like a lot has has built a place called the, the distillery in South Boston, which is a passive house design. And he is basically making an art colony in South Boston with a passive house building. So mm. it's real, it's a thing, right? Yeah. And that uh, that it's a good technology. Uh, and I, I'm sure by 2050, it'll be commonplace. That'll be what everybody grows up in. But it's probably, I think it's primarily a good thing for new construction. It's hard to retrofit back to a passive house design. Right. Uh, but passive house is pretty cool. I mean, yeah, dear, dear listener, you heard it here first. Right? <laughs> when you see that thing that says passive house, say, oh, yeah, I heard that on Steve's podcast. <laughs> and Ted was touting that it's good. And Steve agrees. Yeah, the um, and it, it gives us a lot an allowance to segue nicely into kind of the other okay, so this is for the new houses, new buildings. Um, but there's also been the stretch code, which has been a prior topic. Uh, technically, I believe Department of Energy Resources, uh, DOER released their technical guidance for that. But then Mayor Wu was also in the news recently, she's looking to uh, revamp kind of the zoning building processes to do a couple of things, including making it easier for affordable housing, you know, by the way, also at least climate accommodating housing to go forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean so there's an article in the Commonwealth magazine, which I, I highly recommend people follow Commonwealth magazine, but there was a podcast with Mayor Wu. Her vision for where Boston should go. One of the tools she has for guiding Boston to where we think we want to go is through what's called zoning. And the approval of new buildings in Boston. It's quite quite interesting. So just to dear listener, separate things out, there's the DOER has released a building code, what's called the stretch building code, which encourages decarbonization of new and existing buildings. Okay, that's fine. Other side of the question is zoning, where the town, the city or town, Boston in particular, tries to decide what gets built where and to what end, right? And I think Mayor Wu's case is that the process for developing buildings in Boston, all of the procedures date back to 1965, right? Completely outmoded. And over the years has been, as they say, layered in with a bunch of other responsibilities. So now it's this thing, it's a, a toy that, again, this is my opinion, developers can use to do whatever the heck they want. 
right? So if someone wants to have a for-profit building, build a football stadium in South Boston, I don't know, they can go in and try and do that. And there's this arcane system that, uh, that governs it. I think it's called the Boston Planning and Development Association, which is the grandchild of the BRA, the Boston Redevelopment Authority, right? That has a responsibility. And what Mayor Wu was saying is that this development process for zoning entails like hundreds of meetings with different communities, perpetual skirmishes about particular designs, <coughs> you know, competing meetings that the community doesn't get brought in until the last stage when everything's been designed and the fix is in. And she's saying that Boston, if it wants to address climate issues, affordability issues, transit issues, needs to step back and think about zoning what as a city we want to do and streamline the whole process of approving new buildings because that's the vision right that's where you build in the vision as to what you want things to be so now you don't have to have guerrilla warfare over every you know little building that somebody wants to put up because it's it, from the get-go it is consistent with what the communities want and so i think it's a i think it's really good and it is aligned with all the stuff that we have been saying, Steve, about how to meet the 2050 roadmap, we need to, everybody needs to get on the same page and start mm -hmm. thinking in similar ways sure. about what's got to be done. And by revamping the approval process for new buildings, I, I mean, what, what, what she said in the article was that something like 95% of new construction in Boston requires a zoning variance now, right? So the system is completely broken, right? Everything requires a variance. Everything's political. Everything's, mm -hmm. you know, and she, what she wants to do is wipe that slate clean and have a zoning process as to, to, to determine what gets built where and for what purpose uh, that includes people and takes into account climate, sustainability, affordability, beauty, all those things. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Does that make sense? It, it does. And, you know, it's relevant to discussions that are actually underway and coming to all, us, to all of us near and dear here in Franklin. People may recall there was this Franklin for All thing. Uh, I think it was during 2021, officially. Uh, MAPC, the Metro Area Planning Council, came in, did a study with the town, ultimately produced, I think, let us say, 10 to 14 recommendations. The recommendations are now in the process of the Economic Development Subcommittee of the Town Council to review, discuss, et cetera. That group, the Economic Development Subcommittee, uh, actually forwarded to the Town Council for further review, which means we'll go through that process first. So the Town Council is going to get it, refer it to the Planning Board. Planning Board is going to do a hearing potentially adjust, revise, whatever, ultimately send it back. The council will then do their hearing, revise, adjust, and potentially approve. What are they going to be doing in this particular case? It's inclusionary zoning, which means that as we do build, we include affordable units to a certain percent of what we do. The climate aspects are not in this particular piece, but it sets us up for those. This at least uh, also ties with a state initiative that we've talked of, I think, once or twice here at least, where 
the Baker administration, and we're assuming the Healy administration will carry forward with the concept of MBTA communities. And we have two train stations here. So the state is looking to address its overall housing shortage by incentivizing housing in a transit-oriented nature so that we can have people closer to the train stations, subway stations in Boston, et cetera, but closer to the commuter rail and thereby minimize car traffic, <laughs> right? So you, you're you now getting better housing, hopefully affordable housing in a transit-oriented walkability way, right? That is That discussion is still happening. Um, the Economic Development Committee over a series of meetings has finally said, this is close enough to be good to bring it to the town council. The council, as I said, is going to go to planning board. Planning board is going to come back to the council. So the opportunity is now for us here in Franklin to pay attention and say, yay, I like that. Or mm, maybe tweak this a little bit, et cetera. Um, this is going to be the first of a number of discussions related to that. And there is not at least indirectly a climate aspect of that so yeah yeah i, I think more than indirectly i mean what we do whatever this process produces is going to be in place for the next 20 or 30 years right so it yeah. it must take into account the implications of climate and those are yeah i mean i think we've touched on some of this but it does things like how many parking spaces do you require as part of your zoning Right? right. And that the yep. implication is that everyone's going to drive a car. And is that what we want? Mm -hmm. You know, I won't say one way or the other. But I mean, that, that's and how do you encourage, you know, a nice community proximate to the train stations? Right. right. Those are, without screwing up the good things that you already have. I mean, yeah. So there's a thousand opinions out there <laughs> and they should all be heard. Right? Yeah. And picking up on your point of what Mayor Roos, Mayor Roos trying to address actually has happens here as well. And this is one of the key pieces. There's a concept called by right versus the special permits. So the planning board generally has, if it's a site plan, and then if you can build within whatever the uh, metrics are, call it a thousand square feet, et cetera, et cetera, then you can have an easier process. It's by right. Or if you want to do something else, say, go to a six-story building, then you require the exception, then you require the special permit. So you not only talk to the planning board, you go to the Zoning Board of Appeals, right? All of that takes time. Oh, by the way, time is money, right? So it's it's all related to that extent. Yeah. And yeah. the impervious coverage, right? So one of the examples that came up in a discussion, if you get an acre lot, you can currently only build on about one-third of that lot, which from years ago when the zoning was done, the technology for allowing that pervious coverage, the other 67% to at least- You mean you know, the open dirt? The open Just dirt, the, yeah, the, yeah. the natural space, leave right. it natural so the water can re replenish our aquifers, which we in Franklin definitely need because we're a groundwater community. So we need to manage our stormwater, wastewater in order to have drinking water. Clearly, over the last 20 years when the zoning came in, we there's now other mitigation techniques. So perhaps we can increase the impervious coverage to 60 or 70% because there's other ways like, well, 
rain gardens, you know, tree wells, uh, mitigation of uh, water underground, et cetera, in order to handle that so it doesn't flow into the Charles, which is why the EPA is after us, <laughs> right? right. Right, and right. if we did that, it also theoretically and financially should make the building more affordable because now you're getting more building on the land than you could before, right? So interesting. Interesting. it's interesting how, you know, in some cases, people kind of, you know, oh, zoning, uh, it's making sausage. Yes, I understand. But if you've got the sausage maker and you turn the gear here or the gear there, it'll either come out. Oh, this is great sausage. Or ooh, I don't necessarily want that. Some gristle in there. Yeah. I, I hear you. I mean, I think the 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 these processes, I mean, maybe I would hope there'd be some rejuvenation of all of these community driven processes during this decade, right? Because there's so many things that have to happen and they're all interactive and they're all important and they all need input of everyone, uh, you know, especially the people that are most affected, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's a good thing. So yes. these are, these are going to be public hearings and people can submit con uh, uh, comments and whatnot, right? To the yes. here in Franklin. Yes, absolutely. There will be public hearings. Um, the other piece related to that, I forgot to mention, you know, there's just so much going on. <laughs> the master plan is also up for, for review and renewal. So the town council just appointed their three members. So Glenn Jones has got the honor of chairing that. I believe Kobe Frangillo is the vice chair and Melanie Hamblin will be the secretary or clerk, depending upon whatever they call it. But there are three members of that. There is now an application process for up to six residents who want to participate and spend approximately 18 months in the weeds doing the work doing some research, facilitating some of these discussions, certainly a lot of study, a lot of subcommittee meetings, and then ultimately the public hearings to say, this is what we're thinking the future of Franklin should be like, so that they're at least going to revise the vision statement or approve what's there, because the report, the last master plan was done in 2013. There were, I think, a couple of minor updates since then. But it's the holistic approach. So it's our open space. It's our recreation. It's our housing. It's our economic development. The whole thing is coming together. So what's the vision for Franklin? The time now is to determine it. Wow, wow, wow. Well, there you go. That's, a, that's cool. That's really cool. Yes. There is a lot happening. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. Everything's connected, right? You know, it ultimately is. I don't think we've been able to come to any one particular topic without having another connection to something else. <laughs> I mean, I, you think back to, uh, at least myself, being in college, right? Back in the 70s, the big joke was to put your, touch your index finger to your thumb and say, ah, oh, everything is one. Right? But the more, you, the more you look at it, everything is one, right? It's everything's connected, so. Yeah, yeah, because the, the master plan to take that a little bit further, one of the things that it does is it sets out goals and objectives in a quick review in prep for another meeting that I did in an interview that will be forthcoming. Um, so slight tease there. We'll watch for that one. Um, one of the goals of the prior master plan was to consider 
adopting the Community Preservation Act, which, yay, verily, we did. So now we have additional funding to do some renovations of historical properties. So the Red Brick School, the Historical Museum, things of that sort. We've purchased open space. The people should be aware of that. The other piece uh, germane to this discussion in particular, it also said we should consider becoming a green community. And yay, we did. So now that those accomplishments are indeed complete, the goal, obviously, check off, boom, we did it. Okay, now what's going to replace those? That's where this master plan committee is going to be able to kind of work through. Well, maybe there's something within green, for example, that they'll start incorporating some of the stretch codes or the net zero objectives, right, to take it further. Okay, we, we've had these goal posts. We've achieved this one. Okay, what else do we need to do to get to where we really want to be? Good stuff. Yes. I think since we've covered a lot and ended there, <laughs> let's let's let the listeners digest what we've just loaded there. Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's just so much more we could talk about. We could spend hours and hours, and we effectively do, but <laughs> let's treat them nicely yes, this session. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, there are, we will save our, uh, you know, there's a long list of topics, which maybe we can return to in the not too distant future. But yeah, there, there's a lot going on, which is good, which is a good thing. Yeah, and hopefully moving us forward. Um, and it's not just, you know, because the, the one piece that I think I've become convinced with, and hopefully for the regular listeners, they're starting to appreciate and comprehend. Uh, I started this once upon a time because it seemed overwhelming. There's just too much. What do I do? How do I do this? But as you and I have talked, each individual does have a role to play. And we together individually need to take those roles. We just can't sit back. We can't watch on the TV on the couch. We've got to do something. And it may be a little bit today and a little bit tomorrow, but all those bits are going to add up. Absolutely. Thank you again for helping me make some sense of climate. My pleasure. <laughs> and to the listeners, come back. We've got some more things as we've teased. <laughs> and we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.